grace is something that everybody experiences. Every Muslim experiences the common grace of God. Every atheist experiences the common grace of God. The common grace of God is this, an undeserved patience and kindness of God toward all people prior to salvation. But please understand, that's not enough to save you. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith. I'm Aaron Paulus. Think about this. If we all receive common grace, why are only some saved? Do we have free will or are we elect? If God does elect some for salvation, why should we share the gospel? Well, these are great questions, and I'd encourage you to join us as we listen to Pastor Trent lead us into a deeper understanding of the doctrine of salvation and how this should impact us. Here's Pastor Trent. We are enslaved to sin. That's how corrupted we are. We are free to be enslaved and corrupted by any sin that our appetites lead us into. But we have lost the ability to choose holiness and choose wisely until God comes and fixes that component in us and imparts holiness to us and gives us faith and gives us the will to follow his will. We're enslaved. Our will is broken. It's corrupt. So yeah, we're free to choose any particular sin that we want to be enslaved to. That's the extent of the freeness of our will. You see, left to ourselves, we will always reject Christ. Left to ourselves, we will be bent toward ourselves. We will worship ourselves. We'll never make the right choice. We'll never bow to the Lordship of Christ. That's how corrupted we are. We are, we, we are free in the sense that we can choose any particular sin we want to enslave us. But our free will is actually a slave to its own self-determining choices to remain free from God. And so we're slaves to our own desires to be free and independent from God. That's how hard my heart and how corrupted I really am until or unless God does something about it. And the amazing thing is why would God in his love want to have anything to do with a will like mine that has freely chosen to reject anything that gives me a heart to surrender to him. So God has to do it. God has to come and elect. God has to come and set in motion the things that are necessary. God has to break into the prison of my free will. Free will with quotation. The prison of my free will. He has to break into that prison and set me free from this will that is rebellious and corrupt and blind. And then he's got to give me the ability to surrender to him. He does that for those who are his elect. But what should the doctrine of election do for us? It should do at least three things. Number one, it ought to incredibly humble you. To think that somehow I am completely a prisoner to my own sin and I'm enslaved until God comes and sets me free. Number two, it ought to 
cause you to erupt in praise. That's exactly what this verse does. This verse is not just a bunch of informational head knowledge about how God chooses and elects. It is saturated with praise to God that he would want to have anything to do with people as corrupt and bent as you and I. And number three, the doctrine of election ought to give you incredible confidence and motivation in evangelism. You say, well, now wait a minute. If God elects people before they're ever created and he knows beforehand which of the dominoes are going to fall, then why in the world would I ever have to go and tell somebody the gospel? If God chooses them, then they'll be chosen and there's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing I can do about that. Do you know that that is completely foreign thinking to scripture? It actually works the other way. Here's the way it works. I don't know about you, but when I sit down with somebody that doesn't know the Lord or I meet somebody that, that, that has no understanding of Scripture or maybe no understanding of the God that created them, maybe even somebody that has a different faith system, and I begin to share the scriptural truths or I begin to share my testimony, if I think that somehow their conversion is up to my ability to articulate the gospel and my strong-handed sales techniques of trying to get them to make a decision to choose Christ and to follow Christ, if I think that's up to me, I, I'm never going to sleep at night. That the salvation of the world is dependent upon my ability to articulate the gospel. Do you know what the doctrine of election does? It does this. It means that I've got to get the gospel out to everyone that I possibly can with the confidence of knowing that some of them are a part of the elect and will believe in response to what they've heard. That gives me incredible confidence to share the gospel, knowing that some will hear it and believe it. And it's not up to my ability to articulate it that motivates them to believe it. It is up to God's spirit. And that's exactly what the apostle Paul said for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the apostle Paul that wrote half the New Testament. And notice what he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of who? The elect. You say, but Paul, if they're elect, why would you have to endure anything? Paul saw it as a, as a partnership that God uses faithful evangelists to call the elect. This is the way I like to say it. The same God that chose who chose how. And the how is through evangelists like you, not guys with like blazers and stuff, but you're an evangelist, okay? And that means that you're equipped with the gospel and you go share it with your friends and in the hope that they will repent and believe when they hear it. And when the elect hear it and believe it, they are saved because we have to endure some hardship. It says that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's election. That's the first step. That gets the dominoes falling. And the next step is what we'll call common grace. Now, common grace is something that everybody experiences. Not everybody experiences election. Everybody experiences common grace. Uh, every Muslim experiences the common grace of God. Every, every, uh, every atheist experiences the common grace of God. What is the common grace of God? The common grace of God is this. An undeserved patience and kindness of God toward all people prior to salvation. 
You know what that means? Do you, do you remember in the first couple of pages of the Bible when, when God gave Adam and Eve the boundaries and said, don't touch the tree, don't eat of the tree? And what'd they do? They ate of that tree. That was the tree they wanted to eat from, right? And so the Bible says that, in, that when God warned them not to eat of that fruit, he told them, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Did they die in the day that they ate it? No, they didn't. Do you know what God did? God exercised patience and kindness and gave them a common grace. You know what a common grace is? The fact that they were able to take another breath after they sinned. That was the common grace of God. Um, going outside today and noticing it's a beautiful day and there's sun in the, the, sun in the sky and there's food to eat and, and there's love in our relationships and there's, there, there's clean water for us to drink. Do you know what all of that is? The, the intentional act of God showing common grace to you. But please understand, that's not enough to save you. There is a difference between the common grace of God and the saving grace of God. The common grace of God gives you a few more seconds to repent and believe. And most people live taking advantage of God's common grace and abusing it without ever coming to faith. But if you look back in your, your testimony and you say, man, God was really patient with me. And there were times I cursed God and there's times I ignored God and there's times that I indulged myself. I should be dead. God should have killed me. If you look back and see that testimony in your life, then you ought to thank God for his common grace. We see it in the scripture in Acts chapter 14. It says this. In past generations, he allowed, God, God allows things to happen. Did you know that God allows things to happen? He, he allows you to be an idiot. He allows you to sin. Why doesn't God just stop me from sinning? He allows you to make stupid, rebellious, idolatrous choices in his patience. And then notice what he does. He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, speaking of the nation of Israel. For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's an evidence of God's common grace. The fact that you're able to take another breath, that you had another week to repent and believe is an evidence of God's common grace. Here's the third step in the order. And we call this effectual calling. Effectual in the idea that it has an effect always. Every time God intends to call somebody with an effectual calling, they respond. We define it this way. It is an act of God speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he draws people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Now, this is different than what we call, what theologians call the gospel call. The gospel call is available to everyone. You probably heard the gospel long before you surrendered to it. You had an opportunity to be saved the first time that you heard it. If you ever uh, had anybody share with you the story of the cross and Jesus is alive, you saw somebody baptized, somebody shared their testimony with you, or you had a Christian mother or a friend, at some point you were in an environment, if you've lived in America, you've probably heard a version of the gospel. 
that was enough to save you if you had repented and believed. We're not talking about that. That's important. That's a component of the effectual calling. But the effectual calling is this. The effectual calling is when you are listening to someone share the gospel. The good news that Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. And yet something internally in you begins to resonate with that story. And you begin to feel, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I deserve hell. And what Christ did on that cross was not just a historical event. It was accomplishing something for me. There was a transaction. He was taking my sin upon himself so that I could take upon myself his righteousness. And something internally in you begins to think and to feel and to emote and to respond in faith. And if you felt that, if you're feeling that at this very moment, do you know what's happening? God's calling you. God's calling you. And you will come. Because God decided you're coming. He puts it this way in Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We saw it earlier. This is the verse we looked at earlier. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the effectual calling. And those whom he called, he also justified. And everybody who's called comes. And they're justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see it another way. And again, we keep reading in Ephesians chapter one, and it says this in verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious Grace And again, you see the order of how God works. He allows you to hear the gospel through human proclamation. And it might have been your mom or it could be me or it could be somebody else. And, and you heard a faithful representation of the gospel. Jesus died on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin. And that thought evoked belief. Can a person be saved without choosing to believe. Absolutely not. And yet every person that God saves, he guarantees they will believe. And he guarantees that they will continue in faith. And so we are effectively or effectually called, Jesus said in John chapter 6, in the midst of tons of people forsaking him. These were people that had a temporary relationship with Jesus because he was feeding them food. But he said, they started to leave and he turned to his disciples and said this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That drawing is an effectual calling. The word actually in its most literal translation is drag. God drags you to himself. Does he drag you kicking and screaming? No, he drags you believing and confessing. He changes your response. He changes your will into something that wants to be drugged. Drug me as far as you want, Lord. I, I, I'm coming and I'm so glad. Here's the fourth thing, regeneration. It is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Now, don't, get stumble, don't stumble over the word secret. It's not like this is happening without anybody knowing it. What we're saying is it's a mystery. We're not quite sure how or maybe even when it happens. 
but we can look at our life and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm different. Why am I thinking differently about God now? The things that I once hated, I now love, and the things that I once loved, I now hate. What happened to me? God regenerated you is what he did. He gave you new spiritual life. Now the story, one of the most common stories in the Bible that shows us this doctrine of regeneration is a conversation that Jesus had with one of the most religious men on the planet. His name was Nicodemus. And in John chapter three, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the nighttime, I think because he was afraid of what other people would think if he came in the daytime. And so he came at night and he said this, Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus looked at one of the most religious men, a man that knew his Bible, a man that spent most of his time around people of God, sacrificing, doing religious duties. And Jesus looked at that man and said, you're not getting into the kingdom unless you are born again. Nicodemus really didn't understand what he was talking about. He thought that was kind of gross. And he said, well, how can a man be born when he's old? And can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? That's just gross. I'm just not even think about that. Like, but that's where his mind went, all right? Is it, you tell me, was he understanding what Jesus was saying? No. What was Jesus saying? Jesus went on to explain. He's like, no, no, Nicodemus, listen, listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A lot of debates gone on like, what does it mean to be born of water? I don't think that's talking about baptism. That's not talking about baptism at all. Um, when you ladies are pregnant and you're about to have a baby, there's an event that happens right, that signals to you that it's time to go to the hospital. There's something about to be born. Your water breaks, right? It's talking about natural birth, I think. So you have to be born naturally, but Jesus is saying, but you've also got to be born spiritually. And they're synonymous. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born spiritually. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everybody here could tell me your natural birthday. Mine's June 17th, 1967. Everybody knows exactly when you're birth. You can't remember it, can you? But you knew there was a point at which you did not inhabit the earth and then you did, right? You had a natural birthday. It happened at a point. There was birth. Jesus is saying spiritual birth is just like that. There is a point at which you are dead and there is a point at which you are alive spiritually. And it only happens once. You only have one natural birthday. You only have one spiritual birthday. The question for me to you is this. When was your spiritual birthday? Jesus says, if you haven't had one, you're not getting in the kingdom. You say, but I'm part of the elect. If you're part of the elect, you're going to have a spiritual birthday. If you can't identify the day and the time, that's okay. You, you, weren't, you couldn't remember when you were born naturally. But you knew that there was a time when it happened. It happens in a moment, in an instant of time, and it only happens once. Jesus went on and said, Do not marvel that I say these things to you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, see what he's saying? It's kind of a mystery, isn't it? It's kind of a secret. Just kind of like the wind. It's like, man, I... For some reason, I'm loving Jesus all of a sudden. And I, th this thing on the cross, it's like not just a symbol anymore. It's for me. 
I just wish I could look every one of you in the eye and sit down with a cup of coffee and just say, have you been born again? Have you? Have you been born again? Have you been regenerated? Ezekiel talks about this in chapter 36. He says this, I will give you a new heart. Anybody here want a new heart? Kind of looking at the heart you got, it's kind of cruddy. Kind of got some wicked tendencies to it. Got some baggage and damage and like things you wish you hadn't done. God says, I'll give you a new one. We have spiritual heart surgery too. We have a bunch of spiritual birth. We have spiritual heart surgery. We can do all kinds of surgery here in the spiritual hospital this morning. New birth, new heart. He says, new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's tender and sensitive to God. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. I love that. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. If you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, and you're new to the gospel, you probably think the way the rest of us did because the default thing for humans when we think about being saved or getting right with God or going to heaven, we think about the last line of this verse. If I'm gonna be right with God, if I'm going to heaven, then I gotta keep his statutes and I gotta obey his rules. And that may be for for you, what religion has been. Do you know what this verse teaches you? The only hope you have of walking in his statutes and obeying his rules is for you to be regenerated. You'll never be able to obey the rules. You'll never be able to walk in the statutes until God gives you a new heart and a new spirit that actually wants to obey the rules. And the greatest tragedy of church is that somehow we would communicate to you, you better obey the rules. What we do is say, you don't have a chance of obeying the rules until you get a new heart and a new spirit. You get a new heart and a new spirit, you'll be fine. We'll come around you and say, here are the rules. Here are the boundaries. You just stepped out of bounds. You need to get back in bounds. But if you have a heart to do that, then your heart's tender and sensitive to that. That's regeneration. Have you ever been given a new heart? When did that happen? It happens at a point and it happens only once. Has it ever happened to you? If not, today'd be a great day. Here's the last thing we'll talk about. Conversion. Now, anytime you see the word conversion in theological terms, you immediately need to think of two things, faith and repentance. When we talk about conversion, what we're talking about is this. Our decisive response. Now stop right there. We've been talking about God's activity, right? Do you know that God's activity requires our activity? It is our decisive response to the gospel call in which we sincerely do two things. We repent of sin and place our faith in Christ alone for salvation. So let's talk about that. If God is giving you a new heart and a new spirit, if he is giving you, if he's regenerating you, if you are born again, how is that evidenced or what do we do at that point? Every person who is elected that receives a gospel call, who is regenerated, does two things. He repents and he believes. 
no one should have any assurance of their salvation. No one should think that they are among the elect unless you see evidence in your life of ongoing repentance and faith. It happens initially at the point of regeneration. It happens continually throughout the lifetime of a genuine believer. So what does it mean to repent? It's important for us to understand that theologically in Scripture, repentance and faith are both a command and a gift. This is the awesome thing. God commands everyone to repent and believe. And then he gives us the ability to do what which, which we have no ability to do, that which we have no ability to do. He gives us the command and says, repent. You're responsible. If you don't repent, you're going to hell. And then he gives you the ability to repent. It's, it's a wonderful gift that God gives. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul's going door to door on evangelism. And he says this, I did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to, to Greeks of two things, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? You must repent and believe to be saved. And those who are elect and those who are predestined and those who receive the gospel call and those who are regenerated and those who are converted will repent and believe. And it's not just commanded, it is granted. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If you have any inkling of turning from the evil things that you've been involved in, and maybe the most evil thing that you've been involved in is ignoring God, just living your life as if you were God. If you have any inkling of repentance in your heart right now, do you know what that is? That is a gracious gift of God to you because you don't even have the ability to think that way. And yet God does it by his spirit, not only repentance, but faith. He says this in Philippians chapter one, verse 29, for it has been granted you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but suffer for his sake. Do you see it? Belief is granted. And the ability to suffer and continue to believe is granted to you. We've been talking about what has God done to ensure that I will be saved? But it's appropriate to ask, what must I do to be saved? You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, not just a wonderful historical figure, but he's Lord. I'm following him. He's my boss. I'm surrendering to him. His way's best. And secondly, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. He's not just a historical figure. He's alive today and he's actively working and calling and drawing and gifting faith and repentance. Have you had a spiritual birthday? Have you been born again? If not, why not? And why not right now? If you haven't had a spiritual birthday, God may be calling you today to turn to Him in faith and repentance. We hope that you've been encouraged as Pastor Trent showed us from God's Word how we can have assurance of salvation. 
and we'd love to meet you on your spiritual journey towards trusting Christ. Why don't you send us a note? You can email us at resonate at harvestgranger.org or visit us at Harvest Granger Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located just north of Cleveland Road on Hickory Road in Granger, Indiana. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus. Thanks for joining us today. And it's our prayer that God's word will resonate in your heart and in your life this week. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. For more information, visit us online at harvestgranger.org.